I'm Daniel Frey and this is the Daniel Frey.me Talks, a podcast for anyone who wants to become or is already a developer. If you like to stay up to date with different technologies, learn from experts in the field and help you improve your career further, then this podcast is for you. I also invite you to follow us on DanielFrey.me. So let's begin. So, hello everybody and welcome again to Daniel Frey.me Talks, uh, yet another episode. Uh, and today I have a very special guest with me. Um, his name is Ariel um, and I've been looking forward to talking to him. So, Ariel, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm uh, doing great. Thank you. I have super happy to be here. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be talking about an interesting um, subject, but before we're going to talk about uh, which uh, which topic we're going to be talking about, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Ariel? Sure. So I'll try to keep it short. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Ariel Weinberger. Um, I've been uh, doing software engineering for a few years now, really touching everything from backend and frontend and, and ops and, you know, SRE, serverless architectures, Kubernetes, there's everything. Uh, I really like touching everything. I wouldn't say I'm a master at anything, but I really like working with a bunch of stuff. Um, I have a few courses online on uh, Udemy. And in general, I think what I love is, is the fine balance between kind of hands-on engineering, working with people, education, mentorship, and stuff like that. And uh, currently, I work as an engineering manager for uh, Serverless Inc., it's the company behind Serverless Framework. And um, in short, I'm the engineering manager for the new uh, monitoring and observability product that we have that's uh, Serverless Console. Nice, nice. So some interesting stuff. Um, so obviously, uh, you mentioned that you're working for the company Serverless Inc., but let's not confuse it uh, with our topic, which is serverless. Um, and we'll dive into that and how to not get confused with it later on. But um, yeah, so we will be touching upon the concepts of serverless development and also the serverless framework, which helps uh, implement it. Um, so maybe we can have a, a little bit of a talk about about uh, some examples um, and stuff like that um, or disadvantages. So the first uh, the first question that I have for you just to kick started is uh, Ariel, what is serverless? All right. So when we talk about serverless, um, I can think of two things. One is the serverless paradigm and one is the serverless framework, um, which is, by the way, the, the most common way to implement serverless architectures today. So shall we maybe start touching the paradigm first? Yeah, sure. Let's start with the serverless paradigm. Okay. I think a good way to tackle this is to actually ask you a question back. So imagine you need to set up a backend application using Node.js. Let's say it's a simple REST API that handles, I don't know, shipping for your company. Mm -hmm. um, you can think about stuff like databases, message queues, uh, etc. So how would you, with your current knowledge, go about setting this up? All right, so let me have a think about it. So we have, again, a, a REST API that handles shipping. And obviously, whenever we think about um, a REST API, um, we can go for yeah Node.js, for example. Uh, so I could go ahead and develop my API with Express.js. And then uh, you also mentioned the databases. Um, I could go for something like Postgres or maybe MongoDB. Um, and for the message queue, 
Um, I could go for something like RabbitMQ. Nice. You definitely know your tools. It's a, it's a fairly standard and reliable setup, I would say. And you know, you, you got it all working locally. You spent a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few hours, depending on how, um, on how quick you are. Um, you got something working locally and now you need to deploy it somewhere. And remember you want to, on one hand, deliver a reliable and scalable system for your users mm-hmm. that will support the growth of your application. Right. And on the other hand, you really want to move fast and you want to iterate continuously. And ideally you want to keep things as cost-effective as possible, especially if you're a small team or a startup, which is incredibly common. Right. So I think you mentioned some good points to keep in mind. I would probably choose something that uh, t- that lets me deploy my API easily without much of a ha- hasty, but but then also something that can scale. So, you know, some examples that I can think of uh, for for deployment is like uh, AWS. Uh, so you have the EC2 on AWS, and you also have the MongoDB Atlas. Heroku, um, stuff like that. There are just plenty reliable hosting solutions out there. Cool, nice. And, and again, still a reminder, we're, we're building up to understand what the serverless paradigm is. Um, great, I mean, these are definitely valid ways to deploy uh, workloads, right? EC2 is, is the main compute service or at least one of the first, if not the first on AWS. Um, you mentioned Heroku as well, good points. So while these, options are very popular and reliable. Um, I'd like to mention a few downsides. So the first one is the costs and scalability aspect. So when you need to provide your own servers and databases and, and operate them and man- manage them, you need to constantly take, constantly, sorry, let's uh, say it again. You need to constantly take care of them. Databases need replication and servers need to have the right amount of CPU and memory. You need to be able to support your sort of normal, regular operation, but you also need to prepare it for peak, right? Every application has some peaks that it needs to support. And if you set up your servers and give it too much CPU or memory, you're going to pay too much for redundancy. Mm -hmm. Think about it. You're going to be paying 100%, even if you just use 50%. Um, And if you give it too little you're actually at risk of your systems becoming unavailable uh, at peak times, which is pretty bad. And the second factor to consider is time. Our time actually costs money, right? You hire engineers, you pay for their time. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the things that I just mentioned, they need to be done by somebody. So when you think about EC2, for example, um, you know, these can be either developers in a product team or a DevOps team or, or platform team, and, and it doesn't matter. Um, but wouldn't it be great to free up the time of your developers to focus on delivering valuable functionality and ultimately reduce your operational costs? Yeah, that, that would be great. But then Ariel, where does the serverless paradigm comes in? So the serverless paradigm has been around for a long time. And in a nutshell, what the paradigm means is that you don't need to worry about where and how your workloads are running. So imagine a world where database just auto scale without you having to do absolutely anything. And imagine not having to worry about the memory that you assign to your to your machines or, or CPU power. And imagine that mm-hmm. if nobody uses your services, you actually don't have to pay anything for it. Right. right. Um, and, and serverless really stands for low to zero maintenance and operational costs. Um, and usually 
you only pay for what you use. And if nobody uses your app, then you don't pay and your systems will automatically scale down. So isn't it nice? My God, that sounds really, really good. Um, it sounds like the wet dream of any guy that has like his own website. Um, so hearing it, um, you know, it all sounds great. And it, it says to me also that like, there are no servers, but then after all, it's called server less. So is it then meaning exactly that there are no, like no servers at all anymore? You don't need to worry about it? <laughs> Um, yeah, that's that's one I get I get very often. Uh, it's confusing. Um, so obviously there are some servers, some machines where workloads run. Like you need to take some code and run it on some runtime. That's just how it works. I think the point of serverless as a paradigm is that as a developer, you don't have to worry about these machines. Mm, okay, so. Um, I'm still a bit confused though, because like my website, for example, DanielFrey.me is right now hosted on the cloud. Um, so yes, I had to choose how much RAM, uh, how much SSD, bandwidth and location I need. And I even went as far as paying two years ahead of time to get my discount. But then it's it's something that I don't worry about anything once it's in the cloud, right? Like they, they are taking care of the updates and the, the, the you know, like the scalability at some points. Um, then, you know, what is tell the, then the, you know, the benefits I'm trying to understand. <laughs> uh, we had to mention the cloud at some point in the podcast, right? Um, cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, really the cloud just means that it's hosted somewhere that's not on-premise. On-premise means you own or have to care for the actual physical machines. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to choose your RAM and storage size and you you had to pay ahead of time, uh, which, you know, in some cases makes sense. Um, what mm-hmm. happens if you become super popular? You're going to have, so let's say your website becomes really successful, hopefully, and you become really popular, you're going to have to increase those resources manually, right? And what happens if at night nobody listens to your podcast? Well, you just paid for two years for a certain amount of memory and CPU, even though you most likely don't need the whole thing for most of the time Mm -hmm. or the absolute majority of the time. And, And your website is probably super simple. Now imagine a more complex website. If you'd host your website on a serverless solution, really one of the the key factors here is that you're only going to pay for what you use so you're telling me that i could have uh, like spent zero bucks from day one without making any commitment and just have my website online and only pay for a very small fee for the people that use it that's awesome That's, uh, true (laughs) <laughs> so now I feel obviously stupid because uh, guys, uh, I, I paid ahead uh, of time um, for my hosting solution. Um, and uh, I guess like many people like me make the same mistake, right? Um, but here's the question, Ariel. We're all familiar now with the term cloud and we use it to build our projects. But then again, where does the serverless fit in? Is it also part of the cloud? That's a great question. And again, we're still talking about serverless as a paradigm. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. So, you know, obviously when you go shopping for services to run your projects on, uh, you typically you typically go to one of the cloud providers. So serverless services are typically offered by those cloud providers. For example, when you go and use uh, Firebase to deploy your applications, it is 100% serverless. 
you get a database, um, mm. you know, you get a storage bucket, you can host your website, but you have zero things to worry about in terms of memory allocation, CPU, data replication, and stuff like that. That's just a guarantee that you get from Firebase. Um, if you think about right. GitHub pages, for example, you don't have to tell GitHub, I want to have um, 4 GB of memory. Um, uh, uh, you know, It's 100% serverless. You go there, you put your, your static files, and you, you check a box in your settings, and there you go. You have a static website. Right. Um, and we can talk about some more heavy serverless services um, that maybe some folks that are listening are familiar with. Um, AWS S3, this is one of the first um, ever AWS services that came out in 2006, I think. Um, S3 is a, is a you know, file storage solution. You set up buckets, you put objects in them, you basically store files. And you don't have to worry about absolutely anything. You could store terabytes of files there, and you never have to care about what data center they're at, um, what CPU they're at, how much CPU they have, how much memory they have. Mm -hmm. If you think about SNS or SQS, which are common like PubSub and message queue solutions, very, very popular. They're used for messaging and, and really you don't have to worry about anything. You just create a message queue and you start consuming it. Right. Um, and lastly, maybe databases, right? Um, you have databases like DynamoDB on AWS, you have Aurora Serverless on AWS, and just to leave the AWS zone, you also have MongoDB Atlas, for example. Um, you just drop your data in there. You can connect your applications to it and you really don't have to worry about any kind of typical database challenges such as data replication, sharding uh, for the most part uh, and, and other types of resources. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. So uh, that's great. And uh, then just to summarize now the, the, the only parts that we've been talking about the paradigm is just basically that whenever we talk about the serverless paradigm, we're trying to convey that it is still, there is still a server there. It, just because it says serverless, it doesn't mean that there is no server. But then um, there has been done some work for you where you have to basically not worry about um, you know, scalability too much because, and, and also there is the no cure, no pay. So basically, um, if you are hosting your website on it, um, you're not paying for it um, uh, unless you obviously have visitors and on demand is increasing. So up until now, we covered pretty much what is serverless as a paradigm, but let's get more practical. I'm used to developing uh, my backend with JavaScript using Node.js and Express. How does that work with um, with serverless? Um, you got it right. And yes, uh, I think that's a great question. And it's a very practical one as well. So I'm really going to split my answers into two. And again, serverless paradigm. You have two main ways to run um workloads, if you take the Node.js example. One would be to put it in a container, and one would be to put it in a function. I think the container is the more common, uh, popular one. Um, so I'm going to touch it very briefly. There are services such as, um, I think it's called Google Cloud Run. I think there is AWS Fargate. These are services that will allow you to drop your container there and run it, and you have very little to nothing uh, uh, to worry about. When we say um, containers, do we sorry for cutting you? Just like uh, to honor to for those who are not so familiar with the concept, the containers part is like Docker com uh, containers. Basically, we're talking about or uh, yes. Although uh, now you have Container D, which is a part of the CNCF. Uh, but yes, Docker containers um, are compatible with that. So 
definitely. Right. Um, you can basically take some code, package it into some image, uh, running whatever operating system based image you want, and then you can drop it into a cloud provider. In this case, again, Fargate or Google Cloud Run. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have an application running on demand, scales up, scales down, uh, can go to sleep when there is no usage. Um, that's that's like containers. I think most people who are interested in cloud technologies know containers as the obvious thing. My point with, with, with containers being serverless is you don't necessarily need to have um, a Kubernetes cluster and five platform engineers and worry about RBAC settings and all that. Mm-hmm. You can actually just take a container as a developer and put it in the cloud, get an API endpoint and start sending requests to your container and it will automatically scale up or down and you really don't have to do much for it. Um, right. So totally possible and totally serverless. Maybe we should also touch then the, the function as a service concept. What do you think? Yeah, let's do that as well. Yeah, I'm curious. Because you mentioned cool. there too, right? The Docker option. Um, and then you also have the function as a service. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you need um, a place to host your workloads with a runtime. In our case, it's the Node.js runtime. Right? What, what do you refer to when you say workloads? So if you have a, a REST API that accepts incoming, I don't know, HTTP requests and returns a result, that's a workload. If you have a, mm-hmm. a worker service that takes images and creates thumbnails in three different sizes, that's a workload. A workload is a is basically a piece of code that is either um, compiled or not, um, mm-hmm. which you can put in a runtime and run it, and it will do the work for you. Awesome. So really, any piece of software you want to deploy, you can call it a workload. Um, Anyway, um, so functions. And I think that's where we're going to dive a bit deeper today. So um, there is this concept called FAS, F-A-A-S, function as a service, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's basically an offering in cloud providers that allows you to take some code in the shape of a function, put it in the cloud, and just run it. Um, you invoke individual functions. Um, for example, Google Cloud Functions um, is the offering from Google Cloud. You have Azure Functions for Azure. And of course, you have AWS Lambda mm. for AWS. So all these three services will basically allow you to choose a runtime, Python, Node.js, Java, Golang, mm-hmm. write a function, put it on the cloud, and then you'll get a way to trigger that function. Right, And I think what's interesting is the trigger part. So let's say I wrote a function in Node.js and my function um, accepts an image, creates a thumbnail, and then stores the thumbnail somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I wrote that function. I've put it on the cloud. Right. It's not going to do absolutely anything until I run it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, th- then you need to choose what triggers that function. So in this case, it could be triggered by a HTTP endpoint, right? Right. So you get an endpoint, the user can, the front end can call that endpoint, upload an image. It will save that image, but also will save a thumbnail. Um, mm-hmm. You can trigger functions in so many ways. You can do something when um, when a user signs up. You can do something upon HTTP request. You can do something and, and, and process a message queue. Right. Uh, and an event stream. And really it is two things. It's the function itself, and then it's what triggers the function. I see. I see. Um, and, and, and about the triggering part, do, do you need to, um, 
you know, basically, if that function doesn't run, um, do you need to pay for it? Like, uh, well, how does it work when the, when it comes to the like payment uh, stuff? Because again, we're talking about the serverless, right? Um, part and, and and I think that's also one of the of the key points that we mentioned that that no cure, no pay. Does it also apply then on those like uh, services that the clouds provide? Um, I can always trust that you'll ask the best questions. That's good. Um, <laughs> so actually, no, you, you don't pay for anything if you if you don't use it. Um, and use it is, is, again, I don't want to guarantee and then people find that they pay for stuff. Specifically for Lambda, Lambda functions, you're not going to pay. Um, mm -hmm. You're not going to pay for invocations, right? But for example, if you use um, S3 to store um, a million profile pictures of users, you're probably going to have storage costs. Right. Um, but the point is you're not going to pay for operation. Um, and just since you asked this question, mm -hmm. so let's imagine you set up a Lambda function um, that, that has 256 megabytes of memory mm -hmm. and um, it runs for 100 milliseconds. And let's say you, you have 10 million invocations of that per month. So 10 million can be um, 10 million individual users who um, want to fetch the weather today. Right. Okay. Um, for those 10 million executions, you're only going to be paying $1.8. Right. In total, so not per request, in total. In total, in total, $1.8. If you make it um, 80 million, for example, you're going to be pay $40. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very affordable. Um, there is some point and it doesn't fit. Uh, and I think we're going to touch that maybe perhaps later in the podcast. I just want to say ahead of time, running your workloads on lambdas and, and, and functions is not always the right way to go. Um, it does work for a lot of cases though. And uh, yeah, let, let's continue. I'm sure we're going to have a chance to. Right, right. Yeah. That. Yeah, definitely. But the, the point is, the point yeah. is you can, you can write code and you can scale up to uh, millions Mm -hmm. tens of millions and perhaps even billions of users cross region not having to worry about servers and i think that's pretty powerful right right yeah and and for me i think the bottom line that covers it is that uh, you basically pay for what you use and you don't have to worry about maintaining any infrastructure um so that's really nice and i think that um you know the 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 it's again we touched upon a little bit extra for the paradigm and i think that is a, that is understandable um and if we're going to you know follow up on on that so we said we have two parts we have the paradigm so up until now we also covered the paradigm um and if and we also talked about the paradigm in a practical way so like where do we see it in the cloud and then what can you a little bit spoke about functions in the, in the, as a service um and and now if we're gonna talk about the a little bit about the um the serverless framework so ariel where exactly does it fit in all on all of this together um awesome so serverless framework and again just as a disclaimer here i do work for serverless inc i've been a long user of serverless framework uh since pretty much i don't know three years ago I'm not uh, working on the framework. Uh, I, I want to give some credit to my colleagues um, <laughs> at the company um, who do that. I'm working on the monitoring and observability solution of the framework. So just important to, to mention that. But I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the framework and I've been using it for three years. And again, another point, um, another disclaimer would be that I have an online course on that. Um, so naturally, I'm, I'm probably a bit biased. 
Um, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Now we can uh, now we can start talking about the framework. Cool. And how it fits into serverless. Yeah. Okay. So serverless framework is an open source framework. All right. It has over 40,000 stars on GitHub. And I think we've just surpassed 1 million downloads per week on NPM. It's, it's really steadily going. And I think in short, it's the go-to way to develop and deploy serverless applications. So the absolute majority of developers, when they go and develop serverless apps using functions, mm-hmm. they use serverless framework. Um, it's cloud agnostic, so it doesn't matter if you use uh, Google Cloud, AWS, uh, Azure, and even Tencent, if you're in China, for example, you can use serverless framework. Um, and, and these concepts are applicable regardless of your, of your cloud um, provider. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the framework is a tool that allows you and your team to develop serverless applications with zero friction. And it aims to let you manage your logic and functions um, and cloud infrastructure in one place. So it implements something called infrastructure as code as well, uh, which is really a best practice these days. Right, right. I see, I see. So that sounds awesome. Now, I would like to maybe again get a little bit more practical. And I would like to bring up my example of my website. Um, obviously, right now, it's uh, it's just like me doing the podcast. And there are also like uh, other parts of me writing. Um, but then uh, at some point, it might be scaling up to being an e-commerce website where I sell some merchandise from Daniel Frey. Um, and if we look in that example, specifically let's say that this is going to be an e-commerce website where we sell merchandise and 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 like uh, i have this shipping service in my website right um how would i go on approach and basically how would i approach building that with serverless framework so let's just like have a little bit more of a you know like a a good uh, business case okay cool so really love it that you're sticking to these practical examples. That's the best way to learn. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> sure. Cool. So you mentioned an e-commerce website and, and let's uh, indeed focus specifically on shipping, right? Um, shipping has multiple components to it. The first one would be the API layer. You need a place to receive requests somehow, right? You need an endpoint to be available out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously need a place to run your business logic. For example, check if a shipping exists, if it does not create it, uh, get a tracking link and so on. And then you need uh, yeah. a place to store your data. Right, you have a you need a database basically. Um, th- this is very basic, of course, but I would say these are the three bare minimum things that you'd need. Mm-hmm. Um, and and let's start with something simple. Uh, for example, your logic, your JavaScript code. Um, right. With serverless framework, the way it works, and I encourage uh, viewers to maybe go and, and type in serverless.com or maybe docs.serverless.com and maybe. Watch the docs along if you can. I'm going to attach some uh, good links from serverless uh, to this episode, guys. So if you would be uh, interested, there will be a resources link as well. Awesome. So um, really, when you start a serverless framework project, what you get is a serverless.yaml file, which is the heart of your application. Mm -hmm. We're not going to dive too deep into it. um, But in general, in that file, um, you define your cloud provider. So in, in, let's say AWS or Google Cloud. And then you also choose what your runtime would be. And in this case, our runtime would be Node.js. Right. right. But one second, I just want to stop. Like, So when we generate a project with serverless framework, uh, you mean that we just use the CLI, right? I, 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 there is like a CLI uh, command that ah. you... Yes, good catch. Totally missed that. So 
Of course, uh, serverless has a CLI. So when you install serverless, you can install it globally or you can use NPX. Mm. Um, and then basically you can create a new project using the CLI. Okay, Definitely. cool. And Great. you can use templates as well. So if you want to, for example, set up a project using Python with, with I don't know, um, Flask, then you can do that. If you want to start a project with, with Golang, there is a template for that. If you want TypeScript, there is a template for that. So indeed, you, you can generate a, a raw project or you can generate a project based on a, on a template with a CLI. Yeah. All right. And it can also be like um, for React-like. Is it, does it make sense as well? Like if you it's want, it's possible. It's possible. For example, you can deploy Next JS applications and run them on a Lambda, which mm. is pretty cool if your traffic is uh, is not very uh, very high. Right. It's so possible. yeah, like okay. So now we understand again that that, that how we got into the serverless.yaml file. So when you never you generate a project from the CLI, you basically get the serverless YAML file. All right. So. Go ahead. Right. And again, this, this YAML file is the heart of your project. So pretty much any serverless command you would run mm -hmm. would look for a serverless YAML file in the current directory. So we have our YAML file. We define that we want to use a cloud provider, for example, AWS, and we define that our runtime will be Node, um, right? Um, there are many runtimes. You could go for Java, Golang, Python, and so on. Node.js, um, baby, all the way. Uh, I like that. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> so... Now you have that. Now you need to define your functions. So you would give your function a name and then uh, point it to the JavaScript file where your code runs. So for example, um, we could uh, create a function, um, get user shipping info, right. right? And what that function would do, it would get a user's shipping information from the database and return the result. So essentially you define your function in the YAML file you say you tell the YAML file where to find the logic for that function. So in this case, it could be a TypeScript file, a JavaScript file. Mm -hmm. So just really locally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's in the folder, and that's that's the great benefit of serverless framework. It actually works with your natural Node JavaScript developer setup with npm packages. You could do TypeScript, TS config, right. ESLint, Prettier, which are things you cannot do in the cloud editors of those cloud providers. So it's really, really natural. So now, now we have a serverless YAML file. Um, we have um, a, a function defined. We defined our cloud provider. We defined that we want to run Node, right? Right. So what are we missing? What are we missing? The cloud provider or where to run that logic? Exactly. We need to define how these functions are going to run. We need to define the trigger uh -huh. for that function. Yeah. Right. So having a function alone is nice, but it won't ever run. Um, so, and that's very easy. With serverless framework, the same place where you define your functions, you actually define what triggers that function. Mm. Um, so I could define a trigger to be a HTTP event, right? So for example, slash uh, user slash slash shipping info, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and then the magic happens. When I deploy my function, serverless framework knows based on my cloud provider what it needs to do to basically connect everything together. It will bundle my function file. If I use TypeScript, I can use ESBuild, for example, to bundle my, my files. Um, serverless framework knows that I want to use AWS. It knows that I want to use Node. Um, it knows that I need to use TypeScript and it knows that I want my function to be triggered by, for example, an HTTP endpoint. And then the outcome, what you get at the end would be an API gateway. You don't have to worry about setting it up. You don't have to worry about defining mm -hmm. the routes for it. It's just going to be uh, there after you deploy. 
Then awesome. you, at the end of the day, you get an endpoint. You can run that endpoint and get your your user shipping information. And you mentioned that it's a cloud agnostic, um, but then. I mean, like a lot of times these things are like buzzwords, but is it really then working on like all the huge cloud providers without you doing a lot of efforts in it? Like, yeah. So, you know, if you, if you go to the documentation of serverless framework, you can see concrete examples, techniques, recipes on how to run it on Google cloud, how to run it on Azure. Um, I will say though, based on my experience, mm -hmm. I think AWS is probably the most common one. But essentially, it's you know, it does a lot of magic for you when it comes to setting up API gateways and stuff. And if you need any additional resources, um, you can set it up yourself. So, um, for yeah. example, you touched cloud agnostic. Um, it really embraces the concept of infrastructure as code. And if some of your viewers don't know this concept, I'm going to try to summarize very, very briefly. Yeah, go ahead. You don't need to go to the web console of your cloud provider and do a lot of clicky-clicky to create, for example, a <laughs> database. Um, that would be a pain in the ass. And, and it, it's actually a bad practice, in my opinion. Um, right. The reason being, if you have three environments, I don't know, development, staging, production, and you have to trust humans who are like extremely good at making mistakes to go to a to a web console and click 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 to create a database um that's gonna be really hard yeah. and every change you make you want to replicate it, it, it it's just a no-no it's for me i see it as, as an as an anti-pattern right um mm -hmm. so serverless framework lets you easily implement the concept of infrastructure as code is iac which means you define your cloud infrastructure as code um it does take a bit longer especially if you're new to it once you're in it it's very easy and simple um Mm -hmm. But essentially what it means is as a part of your deployments, serverless framework will check your code. For, so for example, you wanted to deploy a database, right. you define your database as code the same way you would use technologies like Terraform or Pulumi or whatever. Um, and then serverless framework will deploy that database for you. And if you make a change in that database, serverless framework knows that you changed it because it tracks the differences um, and it will apply the changes to your cloud uh, into infrastructure. Um, so for mm -hmm. example, if you actually made, made a mistake, infrastructure is code. The benefit is that you can actually revert code, just revert to a previous commit, right. your pipelines will deploy again and the mistake is gone. So really uh, folks do infrastructure as code. <laughs> it's reliable, <laughs> it's great. Um, I Do think it. I think it should be uh, maybe its own episode even about talking about those the like those things and again we mentioned a lot of uh, a lot probably of new concepts definitely for me as well so that's really an interesting thing um, another thing that I was wondering about Ariel because we mentioned like the database thingy um, does it like the serverless work with any databases or like um, do we have certain like databases that we need to like uh, think about whenever we are gonna choose to work with a serverless framework? Uh, great, absolutely great questions. And, and by the way, if your viewers have some appetite for some more topics that we discussed, happy to join you for another um, Yeah, episode. for sure. Let us know in the comments, by the way, in the post um, or also in the website itself, you can actually comment if there you have any questions and we will definitely answer them. And as well as if it's worthy, we're going to do even another uh, another talk. So go ahead, answer about the... Or maybe uh, they think I'm boring and they, they don't want to hear me anymore. You can also just comment <laughs> that and then we'll know. Yeah. Anyway, to reiterate your question, your question was, can I take any database or any cloud infrastructure that is like 
you know, cross cloud, maybe, maybe non AWS, whatever yeah. you use it. The answer is yes. Um, at the end of the day, you're just running JavaScript code. You, you, you can do a require. And uh, for example, yesterday I've built uh, some transactional email system and I'm using HubSpot for that. HubSpot is not AWS. It's not Google Cloud. Oh man, I know um, HubSpot. <laughs> HubSpot. <laughs> it, yeah. So, you know, you basically NPM install or Yarn install, whatever you want and, and, and import it, right? Um, you have access to the outer world. Um, if you want to use a MongoDB database on Atlas, while you're running your Lambda on AWS, you can do it. I'm not going to get into the details of whether it's the right or wrong thing to do because I right. really think it's, it's a kind of case-by-case basis thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely, it's just JavaScript, you know? Right. Um, another question that I uh, that I have is... How does it um, how does it work when it comes to um, to basically let's say in the YAML file right in the serverless.yaml you're you're identifying the um, the provider that you want to deploy on and let's say um, you will change that uh, that in in a few times right like uh, you're gonna change the provider to a different provider all of a sudden um, do, would you need to do a lot of like um, work? Um, in order to basically have it accomplished? Like, do you need to change a lot of configurations or stuff like that? Or is it just like just straight out of the box, just change the name and that's it? Uh, it's really hard to say without knowing exactly what kind of stuff you have provisioned with the framework. Right. Um, if you set up your databases to be DynamoDB databases on AWS, then um, yeah, you're going to have to <laughs> to do some rewrites, but some parts of the framework, like for example, the way you define functions and triggers and, and stuff like that, they might not have to change. But but just FYI, it's not very common for a company to switch cloud <laughs> providers no, five times a year. It's it's a very like uncommon thing. Yeah, usually it's a long term investment. And our goal, by the way, with serverless is to make it as frictionless as possible, right? But by the way, if you do want to have, um, say you have, okay, here is here is a good example. Um, imagine you design a really big distributed system and for whatever reason, uh, you decided that you want your entire kind of big data infrastructure to be on Google. You can actually define multiple serverless services using different cloud providers. So we've recently released a feature called Serverless Compose that works beautifully with monorepos and stuff like that. Um, and it basically allows you to deploy a stack of multiple serverless services at one go. And by the way, we have some amazing plans for this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it would allow you to, to just deploy different services in kind of different cloud providers, and you can pass parameters between them, right? So for example, if on Google Cloud, you want to provision some cloud function, but then on your AWS serverless workload, you need to call that function, you can actually output parameters with Compose and then consume them in other services. Mm. Um, it's really powerful. It's super, super powerful, yeah. All right. I but see. in a nutshell, in a nutshell, the serverless framework lets you define your app, define your functions, define your infrastructure, deploy your app. You can, uh, every time you deploy again, it will perform a check and see what has to be updated on your infrastructure, or you can completely remove an app, right? So it keeps track of all of the resources you have, like databases, message queues, functions, right. and really automatically make the changes for you. Um, yeah. So 
a little bit to touch upon the CLI part from serverless. Obviously, um, we didn't cover everything, but like the benefits that you can get from it. But so we mentioned the CLI can generate the projects for you. It has the, you know, the serverless YAML file, which lets us define, you know, like our application as uh, like a cloud as, as code, we said, right? I believe you call that. Um, and then basically, what else can you do with the CLI? Like, you know, we, we did it and now we want to deploy does it is it like helps us also with deployment for example or like uh, other stuff so currently deployment is really on you um i have to say it's incredibly simple though like um if we take github actions for example like you would have a serverless project mm-hmm. and you would have a, a workflow that basically when you push to master for example it runs serverless deploy and then dash dash stage i don't know uh staging mm-hmm. it's it's that simple and the, st- the, 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 the state is stored on the cloud. So, you know, multiple developers can collaborate. Um, it's, it's incredibly simple. Like it's literally running one command. You have to NPM install and then you can serverless deploy. Um, you can have an endless amount of stages. Um, so really a stage, would you could have companies that have development and production. Mm-hmm. You could have five. Like it really is just a word, like a parameter that you pass. Okay. Oh, great. Um, Another thing that I'm wondering is, uh, let's say you have a project that is not using currently the serverless framework. However, you do wish to 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 start using it. Is it is it um fairly simple to basically have it uh, on an existing project, or would you need to be changing quite a lot of stuff from your uh, I don't know experience or observation? It's fairly simple. It's very simple. So actually, you can run. Um, express applications, for example, in Lambda functions. Um, Whether it's the right thing to do or not, I mean, it really, again, it really depends on your use case. Mm. But if you decided, for example, that tomorrow um, you want to take your workload that is running some express app um, that has, I don't know, 20 routes, um, and you're really tired of just paying for your eight gigs of memory and uh, I don't know how, how much CPU for idle use. Um, yeah, you can just dump that code into a, into a Lambda function. Um, and Lambda functions can actually um, run Express apps. I see. All right. Okay, so then it can basically... Um... It can be simple. Um, depends, of course, on your other use cases. So I think just to like um, summarize. So like, um, yeah, up until now, we 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 spoke about the the serverless in general. Uh, we we divided basically to two parts because it's not only one thing, right? Um, you have the the paradigm as a server serverless as a paradigm, and then we also have the serverless framework, and we also have the great company which you're working at, and and where do they uh, basically uh, providing their, you know, help. Um, and yeah, I think like just to summarize it and the paradigm again, um, it is just the, the thought of you again, not having to say in particularly how much, you know, like space do you need and, and, and Rams and maybe, uh, also, um, you know, like the location, um, and like the, the thing that it really helps you with, I think for me, for my website that I learned is that I could basically do something like, um, no cure, no pay, where if somebody is not using my website, I would not have to pay for anything. Um, and if they do use it, uh, I would have to pay like really really, really almost nothing. Uh, of course, also depends on which service I use in the cloud. Some are a bit more expensive, some are a bit um, 
less. So like really also have to compare the the, the services that you're using in the cloud itself. But again, that is the paradigm um, and the, the framework itself uh, that basically helps us. Uh, it just combines everything together, right? So like uh, deploy it really simply uh, by using the containers that we mentioned uh, serverlessly uh, and basically you don't have to do a lot of configurations. It, it follows the, um, you know, the paradigm that we mentioned that have an infrastructure as code. Um, and it's just like plugs in everything together uh, and generates also for us a nice project uh, where you have, you know, all kind of setups already predefined there. And if you already have a project that is not using the serverless framework and you do wish to use that, it is fairly simple. Um, obviously we didn't dive into, you know, so many use cases. I have myself, you know, no, I, we don't. We don't have to. I would say the mo- the thing that people will feel most when, like, let's say, for for our viewers or, or sorry, our listeners who are actually planning to give it a shot, I would say think about a side project you wanted to develop for some time, mm-hmm. and just give it a shot in a weekend, and you will notice immediately how quickly you get going. <laughs> actually focusing on delivery and you don't have to worry about the painful cores of, of, you know, (laughs) defining infrastructure. Uh, Daniel, I want to suggest maybe we can talk a bit about um, some downsides as well. I think it's, uh, it's important that, that your listeners are aware of maybe some things that are perhaps not so great about serverless maybe. Yeah. And um, also maybe we can talk a bit about some users of serverless in the world. Like um, it's very battle tested. Um, and I think it's cool to share some of the stories um, of some heavy users of serverless and lambdas and stuff like that. Before we do that, um, I do want to like hear a little bit of uh, of tips from you. Uh, again, you mentioned like do it on the weekend on some project. But then, um, what if somebody is not familiar with like the serverless concept in general? Uh, how would you um, you know go ahead and you know recommend on on that going? Like, would you first start to use uh, the cloud and then try to to do serverless, uh, like uh, using some of their services that are serverless? Or, you know, what yeah. would you be your headspace around that? Um, cool. So if you want to start using serverless framework and... In general, like are... serverless paradigm. Okay, serverless paradigm. All right. Well, I think it really depends, right? I mean, for example, Firebase is something that I'm so many people use and it, it is serverless, right? <laughs> I, I personally find it very limiting in terms of like building products that are meant to grow and scale. Right. Um, but it is serverless and it's a great way for somebody who just wants to focus on front end and delivery um, to get going. Um, specifically for the framework, I would say just go through the docs. It's incredibly simple. All you need to know is how to write some YAML, which is honestly a very forgiving um, <laughs> kind of... Um, way to write JSON basically. And uh, the, the, the only thing then you know, you need to know is how to write JavaScript functions. Right. So that's, uh, that's an, that's, is that's good. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, and then in general, do you need to know, like have a, like what, what kind of knowledge do you need to have uh, prerequisites in order to start with the framework you think? Um, I would say not much. At the end of the day, I mean that as a front end developer, maybe like you need to know how to how to send an API request, I guess, um, like a HTTP request. For okay. example, if you want to build a I don't know a bookstore backend to try out, 
then you'll need to implement these functions, but then your front end will, will need to consume those functions. So mm -hmm. probably some decent knowledge, um, something that is really not, not specific to serverless, but you need to know how to send API requests and kind of process the result and all that. Right. And also like cloud providers, do you also need to have some experience with those? You'll need to sign up. You'll need to sign up to AWS uh, or Google Cloud or whatever cloud provider you want to use. Um, mm -hmm. But the instructions are very clear on how to do that. All right. And, uh, you know, like uh, the Lambda functions and stuff like that, it's also something that you need to, like, again, you, you don't have to obviously use those. Um, but it, it, would you say, like, it's something good that uh, that you would recommend to the person to that whoever checks that out to try to learn about? Like in general, like I yeah, think absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, at the end, again, I, I think actually. So when I started diving into microservices a few years ago, and by the way, that's like one of my favorite topics. I'm going to speak about microservices at Node TLV this year. I love distributed systems. I love microservices. One of the things that I absolutely love about writing code in functions is that naturally you separate things in a very healthy way that mm -hmm. keeps your code very maintainable, very readable, very kind of one function does one thing very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's actually a, a great kind of architecture boost um, for people who are kind of struggling to, to wrap their head around how do I take an express app and split it into microservices now, for example. So functions right. are kind of already giving you that um, out of the box. And it doesn't matter if it's Lambda or, or something else. It's just kind of the, the mindset that you get into. Right. All right. All right. Good, good. Um, so these are good points again. Um, and uh, yeah, now we can dive in a bit uh, for the cons of, uh, of serverless and what are the, you can say, disadvantages and also some cases, test cases that you test uh, studies uh, that you, uh, case studies that you mentioned about. Um, downsides, right? Yeah, downsides. Cool. cool. Let's talk about downsides. I mean, I, I think again, it's important to mention, and these downsides are specifically for functions. Um, and most likely, if you face a situation that has these downsides, but you still want to remain serverless, you can just deploy to a container like Fargate, for example, or Cloud Run on Google Cloud, um, and and you're past these restrictions. Um, so maybe some some um some downsides about running lambdas specifically, because that's the one I'm mostly familiar with, but I can imagine it's applicable to other cloud providers as well. Um, so for example, you have something called a cold start. Um, that's just the nature of this compute, right? Uh, you want on one hand to not have to pay for a service when nobody calls it. For example, if at night you don't have any business, 12 hours, whatever. Um, mm -hmm then what, what AWS will do is after your function hasn't been executed for uh, for some time, I don't remember how much that is exactly, um, there will, you know, there will not be an instance of your Lambda immediately available. Um, and that means that the next execution is going to experience what's called a cold start. So that is the time that it takes for AWS to actually spin up your Lambda, take care of wherever, where it runs, and then make it available. And right. this can take a few, you know, I don't know, maybe 200, 300 milliseconds, depending on, on the Lambda and stuff like that. Um, after that, the requests that come in are going to be super fast, but that is something to consider. Um, there are ways to deal with that as well. Like, for example, Serverless Framework has um, a huge 
plugin ecosystem. So for the more advanced users, just kind of Google serverless framework plugins and you'll see a whole repository of plugins that are really awesome. And one of these plugins mm-hmm. um, allow you to just have your uh, function always warm. It's called the warm-up plugin. Um, so it basically knows when to make an artificial call to your Lambda to make it warm. Um, so there are ways to deal with it, but just know it can happen. I don't think it's a huge deal, um, depending on 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 your business and your and your users. <clears throat> but um, once you get past the cold start, you have some time where it's going to be uh, like blazing fast. Um, mm-hmm. The second thing that I can think about is execution times. So if I remember correctly. Um, Lambda functions can run for up to 15 minutes. Um, and, you know, that means, by the way, it used to be five minutes before they extended it. Um, and that means that if you have workloads that need more than 15 minutes, it's it's just not the suitable um, way or medium to run the workload. Maybe so, you need to instance, split it up then, right? You can. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think, again, it depends on the use case because I'm not a huge fan of giving up to your infrastructure. Like if you develop a CI CD system, like you want to have uh, your own CI CD system that takes uh, YAML files and, and runs tests on containers and stuff, then yeah, I don't think Lambda is the right place to do that. Um, <laughs> just not. Um, All right. It's probably going to end up being uh, not as efficient uh, cost-wise as well. Um, but right. yeah, these are like some, some two limita- uh, limitations. Um, okay. One more important state is like, you know, lambdas have this concept of ephemeral storage, basically whatever you do in your Lambda function, like working with files in the file system and stuff like that. Right. Um, if you use FS to store stuff and stuff like that, I mean, it's ephemeral, which means in simpler words, it's not, it's not persistent. Um, so you really need to get into the stateless development mindset. Stateless is a huge word. It's a word you definitely want to know. So if you're not familiar with what stateless means, just Google for what is stateless in microservices or whatever. It's I think it's it's a great practice to develop things in a stateless manner. It allows you to scale horizontally without um, any issues. But just so you know, if you are used to working um, with Express and then, I don't know, maintaining um, a, a, I don't know, JSON object with state for uh, uh, books or orders or, in, or, or or shipping information or whatever it is, that's not something you would do with the Lambda. Like you would have to store information either on a database or on like some cache layer like Redis and stuff like that. So you really have to work in a stateless way, which again, uh, I think is a best practice when you uh, try to develop microservices or distributed systems in general. So just know if you put stuff in memory on some something in the like external scope of your function, um, don't be surprised if it disappears. That's just <laughs> the nature of this compute. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, these are good uh, good points for disadvantages that uh, definitely need to keep in mind. Um, and if in in case uh, you uh, as a listener don't know what those keywords mean, uh, we'll try to put some resources as well. Um, and since we're also running out of time, Ariel, I would like to, maybe you can mention uh, in a nutshell, some case studies that you said like the serverless was uh, being tested quite well um, on, on on actually production times, the serverless framework, I mean. So then um, perhaps you could mention some you know case studies. Yeah, cool. You know, when, when I first got exposed to serverless, I was working at the zone. Um, we used to deploy 
services for millions and perhaps tens of millions of, of daily users on Lambdas. And I was kind of shocked and I went and, and wanted to check who is using this Lambda thing. And then I was really mind blown. Like iRobot uses Lambdas super, super heavily. They actually connect it to their Roomba robots or Autodesk uses it heavily for their operations. Square Enix, the gaming, the, the gaming uh, I think they're a gaming producer or publisher. Um, they use it in their actual games to manage stuff like inventory and stuff like that. Companies like Nordstrom use it. Coca-Cola. Uh, I'm not sure if they still use it, but I know in some of their vending machines in the US, they would actually go and and, and call like Lambdas um, as well to manage stock and stuff like that. So my point with that is like, it's everywhere. Um, so many companies are using this. It's, it's very reliable. Hopefully, I've given you enough information to kind of trigger your appetite for you to check it out. Do consider the downsides of it. Do your own research. I think it's important to understand what the downsides are and not like religiously choose one solution or another in any use case. And yeah, if you have any questions, I'm sure I'm going to be able to help, to help you and, uh, and answer your questions in the comment, uh, wherever Daniel posts this. Great. Yeah. It will be on the website, uh, and uh, also on social medias. Um, and I will also definitely tag you along uh, with that whenever there is a question for you, Ariel. And one more thing I'm going to say is, um, if you do start your journey with serverless and, you want to monitor the apps that you work on, then just go to console.serverless.com. Um, that's the product that me and, and, and my wonderful team is working on. Um, it's going to make your workflow so productive when it comes to monitoring serverless applications. Um, you're going to love it. Um, and yeah, give it, give it a shot. Awesome. All right. So again, thank you so much, guys, um, for listening. And Ariel, thank you again for joining me today. It was uh, super nice to have you here in the podcast. Um, this was serverless with Ariel. And uh, any last words? Um, yeah, have a good one, everyone. And uh, happy coding, I guess. Go serverless. <laughs> Oh, I like that. Thank you for listening to the Daniel Frey.me Talks. Get access to previous episodes, the transcript for today's show, as well as other exclusive content at DanielFrey.me.